Hi, this is Jason Martin, and welcome to the Vine Church Podcast. Uh, This is the second episode in our short mini-series about race and the church, and in a moment I will be joined again by Warren Gray, Tamisha Williams, and Chris Daughtry. Uh, This second episode picks up right after Dr. Jude Austin had to leave to go to a different meeting, so he doesn't appear in this episode, but if you haven't listened to the first episode in this series that was published uh, last week, Um, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, Dr. Austin appears on that episode along with Chris and Tamisha. And uh, today, uh, this conversation goes into um, a little bit more broader category, kind of looking at race in general. Uh, Chris Daughtry in particular um, has a lot of things to say about that. Um, And I feel like we need to have him back to uh, kind of build on some of these comments. Now, As we get into this episode, I would encourage all of our listeners to um, remember that your responsibility in this moment is not to render judgment on certain opinions or perspectives. Uh, We feel it's important to have these perspectives expressed, even if we might uh, be challenged, especially if we might be challenged by them, but even if we might fundamentally disagree with some of those. Um, I think some of the things that Chris says are very poignant and uh, important to note. Um, I have no doubt that some people listening to this may disagree with him on certain points. That's okay. Um, All too long, we have been too complacent to only listen to voices that we agree with. And fundamentally, we need to see the voices that we hear and listen to not simply indicative of enforcing what we already believe, but to help us better understand what is the experience of these other people? What are the experiences of people who look like, who look different from us, who sound different from us, who have very different lived experiences than us? Um, and if we disagree with those perspectives, that's okay, but we need to respect and understand that those perspectives are theirs and are valuable uh, as part of the conversation. So um, I appreciate you listening this far. I will warn you, this is probably the longest episode uh, that we've had of the Vine podcast. And so uh, strap in and uh, enjoy the conversation. We look forward to continuing these conversations in various ways and with various people in the future. Here we go. Chris, you've, you've, you've pointed in some directions with some of those resources as well. What what recommendations, Chris, would you have? Kind of places people could start, or or kind of pick up some of those conversations to to kind of learn some more. Um, definitely, uh, you might not want to play it in church, but uh, um, Tim Wise does an excellent job of really bringing a historical component to uh, racism and to how racism has impacted the country. I remember him being on the CNN video. Uh, where uh, colorblindness is a very (laughs) well-intentioned thing um, where we want to, you know, I don't see color. So um, I actually had a conversation with a gentleman and, you know, I remember the first time that I found out that from a historical and biblical standpoint that Jesus was a man of color all my life. I saw a picture of, you know, the Kenny G version of Jesus, blonde hair, blue eyed, 
Um, I thought Jesus was white. I thought white people were God. I don't have any problem admitting growing up to that idea because every image that I saw was of Jesus being a white man. And then when I was challenged, even I was reluctant to be like, what do you mean? Jesus wasn't black. Jesus wasn't a man of color. Jesus was. And then you bring out the map and where Bethlehem is, where Egypt is, like where these places are. It's like, oh, okay, that's uncomfortable because that's that's not what I was taught. Even though that's something that, you know, that I accepted, it was uncomfortable to come out of that just because that's what I was used to. So continuing on the conversation, um, you know, the importance, one of the things Tim Wise brought out, he was like, again, the use of the image of a white Jesus had a particular meaning. It had a particular purpose, which was conquest, which was to take people and bring an inferiority complex and present themselves without saying the words. They presented themselves, hey, God looks like me, so I must be better than you. And it was a very successful tool that's been used throughout history. So I had a conversation with a gentleman and uh, he was just basically saying, hey, Chris, man, I love uh, what you do in the community and everything. He was like, man, but, you know, why why we got to talk about what color Jesus was? He was like, you know, Jesus, Jesus loved us all. You know, color doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. Now the, no, it does. The, pet, the petty side of me was like, if color don't matter, then what do you do at a stoplight? Understand that, that that's a very important context and statement that you're making. But I uh, I played along with it. I said, you know what? I hear what you're saying. The color doesn't matter. I said, so this is what I want you to do, if you're willing. I'm going to get some local artists that are phenomenal artists. They are going to paint Hispanic and Black Jesuses. And we're going to have you replace all of the white pictures of Jesus that you have up. We're going to replace those with black images and Hispanic images and other de de uh, demographics. His pause was all the telling. He personally didn't have a problem. And I went ahead and said it for him. I said, right now, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not concerned with yourself personally allowing that to happen. But how many of your constituents and members do you see walking out of the church the second that they see exactly now that becomes problematic when it is you know even if you have a leader that may feel a certain way the the reluctance to admit when you have a racist congregation the reluctance to admit when you have somebody in a place of authority that you know does not view people of color in a well manner it's a lot of pressure, yes. but it's going to take boldness. It's going to take somebody that is willing to stand and say, like, I am willing to take or lose what I may lose to come out and say, hey, this is right, or take an action. So to, um, again, going back to ACU, I've had people that lost their scholarship, not even their scholarship, lost their parents paying for their education because they were in pictures with me. And they gave them an ultimatum of, if I see you with some black people again, I'm not paying for anything. Now, keep in mind, these are people fresh out of South Carolina and uh, Kentucky. They have no problem uh, with a white nationalist mindset. And they have no problem with saying that they're not 
okay with inner uh racial relationships and things of that nature and they have the money to operate that way so for somebody to come and say you know what i lived in a bubble for a while but if you are going to try to hold this financial prosperity over me in order to declass another person i'm not going to do it so to watch somebody take their financial security just so they can eat in the bean with me that carried more weight than any other speech that I heard somebody else say, any of those words, because the reality is there's a sacrifice that comes. Yes. There is an uncomfortability of relinquishing particular things because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit what's been taught. And there's a level of comfort that the many churches aren't willing to come off of because it's beneficial. It is a comfort. I believe um, one of you said it very clearly. When white is the standard, it's like you are simply um, tolerating anything else. Any other inclusion is simply a toleration or a judgment. But that idea that it's a toleration instead of a different version and just as valid and just as real as anything else becomes extremely problematic and people feel that that energy in it it's like okay we had you know we had to listen to black uh praise and worship two times this month when we're gonna get back to the okay you may never say that with your mouth but it comes out in your action it comes out with the energy and frustration that you have that you've been taught that you are it you are the standard and so with us having um difficult conversations about race with us being able for the first time. And I hate that it took George Floyd and these other people to lose their life, to be able for somebody to step back and say, wait a minute. Now, what was you saying about racism being present? For me, I'm like, yo, Freddie Gray didn't do that for you. Eric Garner didn't do that for you. Tamir Rice didn't do that for you. And I'm sitting there, what was Right, so many more. But instead of focusing on that, I feel like we really need to take the opportunity for those who are willing to listen at this point and see if we can make some real changes. And I think if we are going to have that conversation, um, it's going to take people that have a lot willing to lose. Again, it may not be your pastor, you, you know, sometimes we will take the pastor of the church and make him the entire body. Oh, he's a good person. He's this, he's that, and all the different stuff, or some of the leadership. And we will totally exclude that you are only a small percentage of their representation because how many of your constituents, how many of your members, how many of your donors are coming in and behaving in such contrary attitudes? You know, I remember being invited to a church and literally walking into like, you know, that that awkward moment, because I'm a very confrontational person. I'm not disrespectful intentionally, but I'm very confrontational. If we have an obstacle, I want to address it. I don't want to push it off. I don't want to act like it's not happening. So I had a gentleman that came in the Sprint store while I was working in Sprint and I had got invited to uh, a church. The gentleman, when he came into the Sprint store, called me all types of racial slurs. He threatened me. He threw stuff off of my desk to the point where my manager kicked him out the store. I walk into the church, and the second person that I see is this individual. Wow. 
And I sit there and again, I'm petty. I'm like, <laughs> like, hello. <laughs> Let, let's see how this turns out. How many hallelujahs and thank the Lord are you finna toss my way? Let's see how this goes. And he looked at me and he turned around and tried to walk. I said, hey, sir, how you doing? I noticed you didn't speak to me. And he turned around and like, uh, and walked off again. And I told my friend at that moment, I said, who is he? Like, what, what? He's like, oh, um, that's one of the deacons. I said, I gotta go, bro. He said, what do you mean? I said, I gotta go. Cause this whole time that I sit in this service, I'm gonna be staring at him. And when he go and like, I'm not gonna hear anything else. Cause for me, that screams volumes that not only is he a member of this church, but you showed your character. You showed how you mm -hmm. feel how about you black people. And now you have the opportunity to possibly get into the pulpit and speak with knowing you're carrying your action. So, you know, even when it comes to things like a Black Lives Matter movement and things of that nature, I don't understand Maybe, you know, the difference in the organization and the movement are that I don't understand the complete politics of it. But if you are saying that you're a Christian, you saying that you believe in Christ, you believe in the Bible, and you say that you disagree with Black Lives Matter, you want to counter it with All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter or whatever the case may be, I dare you to read Mark chapter 2 and come back to me and say that you can, within good standing of the Bible, continue to disavow the movement or the statement or the notion that Black Lives Matter. But for anybody that hasn't already read it, I'm gonna skip to the portion where Jesus said, it just came out and he's speaking to the tax collectors and the sinners. On another note, one day we are gonna find out the Bible do not play about tax collectors. They got their own bracket. Uh, that's right. It's sinners and tax collectors. I've always been like, what? That's it. What did these tax collectors do to get so much attention? But you got the sinners and the tax collectors, and Jesus is speaking and eating and and treating them like people, giving them water to their soul that they need. Maybe not even speaking one single Bible verse or anything of that nature, but he's treating them like people. Right. And here come the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is he doing sitting with those tax collectors and sinners? And possibly one of the most iconic responses and, and specific response was, I did not come for the well. Wait a minute. I thought he came for everybody. Mm. Jesus saying out his own mouth, I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. That's it. Mm. So you telling me everything that you're saying in all of the generalization and, and blurring that you try to do, you telling me the very icon of your religion and of your belief is telling you that he specifically came for a particular group of people, not all. Now, everybody will benefit, but he told you my purpose in coming was for this specific group of people. And then you turn around and say, all lives matter. You're scripturally incorrect. <laughs> yeah. So if it comes down to yeah. it and we have this conversation, it has to be of either you are more loyal to your feelings and the ideology that's been placed into you, or you're going to go by your word. Either one, at the end of the day, I'm not a judge. But when we're going to talk about moving forward, that is the obstacle that's going to have to be overcome. 
that is something that's going to have to be addressed. That all of a sudden, yeah, for the first time, a mic has been turned on for black people, and everything within your being is trying to yank that mic out of their hand. For them the first time have the opportunity to say, you know what, I have felt less than. Right. I have felt marginalized. I have felt attacked. Even me myself, I don't even have a speeding ticket. And I can't tell you how many times I've been on the hood of a police car from being a kid all the way to an adult. And to be in that place of just fear, especially being a father, of asking the question, how long are my sons going to be cute before you see them just as dangerous as me? Right. And that's a real, like, all the politics in the world is not going to change. That's a reality for me. And it's one of those, un, you, you can't even say it's unprovable because how many body cams do you need to see? How many active shooters are going to be brought in alive? So you telling me you can bring in somebody with an assault rifle shooting up a group of people. We just had somebody that got in a shootout with the police, injured several police and was arrested. But you killing paramedics in a no-knock warrant after they just got off a shift and trying to rest for the next one. Like you, you can come up with all of the attempts to try to distance and ignore a reality, but that doesn't change. At the end of the day, we have a worry as black people, especially as black parents, of the safety of our kids for no other reason than the color of their skin. That is the obstacle. One of the best things I read uh, when you know a lot of the recent protests have happened and I was I was on Twitter and which is sometimes a dangerous thing to be on Twitter uh, but I saw something that really spoke to me you know whenever I would hear people say well I don't see color that never sat right with me and I de- didn't know why and this exemplified it and he said um, I see no color is not the goal I see your color and I honor you. I value your input. I will be educated about your lived experiences. I will work against the racism that harms you. You are beautiful. Tell me how to do better. That's the goal. That, That spoke immediately and said, ah, okay, that's why, that's why we need to stop saying I don't see color. That's why we need to recognize that while yes, all lives matter, that goes without saying, Black lives are the ones that are hurting right now. Yes. And those are the ones that yes. the, the black lives are the ones that we need to be proclaiming that matter because too many people don't believe that they do. You know, and, and I heard I heard a, pre- a preacher one time uh, recently. I saw a video where they said, you know, the people saying black lives or all lives matter are the same people that if they had been at the Sermon of Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. They would have been the ones shouting out, no, Jesus, blessed are all people. Well, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, yeah. those who weak, those are the ones who are hurting right now that we need to lift up. And and that's why Black Lives Matter is so important, because it's black lives that are hurting right now that need to be supported and encouraged and listened to and valued in ways that they haven't been. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, that. The parable of the lost sheep, I think, is also uh, instructive in that, that that Jesus speaks of going out to find the one who's lost, you know, um, and, and leaving the 99. And, and, well, and a yes. lot of times we use that as a way to talk about people who are lost to sin 
But I think right. we can also talk about those who are lost within our society. That, yeah, that those who are been, wounded. You know, the, yeah, the, the, sheep yes. who's, the sheep who's left out there is probably out there because he didn't have the capacity to get back or is mm. hindered in right. some way. Uh, you know, to kind of relate it, you know, it's not because he's stereotypically lazy or isn't working hard or isn't pulling his own weight. You know, he's probably left out there because he's wounded or is in somehow is some way inhibited from getting back. And so Jesus leaves the 99 who were fully capable of getting back to the pen on their own to go out and find the one who is wounded and, and can't get back and brings him back. Right. Um, yeah. And so we can you can leave the 99 and, and go find find the one who was left out there. Um, and I think. You know, I think though, again, unintentionally, I think a lot of our thought around some of these ha- issues has probably been um, sort of subtly informed by Paul's. You know, we we love the verse from Paul that there is no Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Like we love that idea of everyone just kind of blending out of the things that make them distinctive into this kind of uniform picture of of a Christ follower. Um, and again, for those of us who have come out of a predominantly white Christian culture, uh, we've kind of expected everyone to fit that. Um, fit the mold. Right? And and I don't that that that's not what Paul was getting at. <laughs> that's not his point in in kind of going through all of that. Um, you know, Paul's speaking to people who are trying to exclude people based on their their background, their uh, their nationality, their their race, whatever. Um, and and his work is about bringing everyone into into the picture. Um, and and those are just completely different goals about trying to uh, to recognize that that all have have worth and value instead of excluding some. Uh, that's different than saying we just all need to blend into this this place where we don't have any differences and where we're all the same. Um, and I think, you know, Chris, a couple of things that you were talking about maybe kind of think that I think one of the things that we probably need to come to is, as white people and, and maybe to me, sure, Chris, you've got a response to this is, is that I think it's important for us maybe, and I, I've just had this thought as you were kind of sharing some of your story, Chris, because I think there, there are parts of your story that we that that I as a white person hear and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe that's still happening. You know, right? Like, how would a Christian say that you're going to hell because you're black? Like, you know, and that, and we're shocked by that. And maybe we don't need to be as shocked because maybe the shock is is kind of us telling ourselves that's the exception, that's not the norm, that's 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 the fringes, and and for the most part, we're doing okay. And and I think distance. yeah, we we distance ourselves from it. Um, the idea that, that you had friends at school whose parents cut them off from, from financial aid, like just seems shocking, but, but yeah, if we let it be shocking, we, we can keep it at a distance and, and, and miss the fact that that's, that's an ongoing struggle for so many people, um, that we need to allow ourselves to hear those stories and not be shocked by them. And instead to realize these are the, this is the reality for so many people um, and, and I do think, you know, I remember growing up when I was in school, uh, Martin Luther King, the way that he was presented to me, I felt like from an early age, Martin Luther King was like so far in our past and he was like this hero who had defeated racism <laughs> and we were past that now, you know, like this is the work that Martin Luther King did. He was a hero. He ended racism. We celebrate him now. We're all together you know, segregation is gone. All this stuff is gone. We're kind of past 
racism. Like, yay, we won. Um, and, and then I even, so I kind of carried that into adulthood and even kind of like, you know, when Obama was elected was kind of like, I, th- I think looking back on it, kind of like the, the proof of that in my mind, like, hey, if we can elect a black president, we must be doing okay with, with racism. Post-racial society. Yeah, we are post-racial. Mm-hmm. We, Obama's election is like the ushering into this, this official post-racial society. Um, and, and I think it took a lot of those things like you were talking about. You know, it took seeing the, the George Floyd, you know, murder on camera and several of those other things over the course of time to, to realize. Right. Wait, this this never actually went away. And I, I can imagine that being frustrating for you as black people to be like, yes, this is the things we've been trying to tell you. Of course, they never went away. Um, and and I, all of that, I, I do think is is pretty uh they're conversations that we need to, to be aware of and, and to be willing to, to do the work, to, to sit with them, to, to hear stories, and, and to ask ourselves, okay, so what do we need to do to address those things from our past and, and move forward in healthy ways? So about um, two years ago, my son, he, he does occupation, um, Oakland, occupied Oakland in um, Oakland, California, and he stands about six, seven, six, eight. He's real tall. <laughs> And so um, just, you know, they're, they're, they're fighting for the homeless, they're fighting for the indigent people, you know, people that are not able to um, take care of themselves. They're, they're not understanding at the time why their land can't be occupied with tents so that they can have housing if they can't afford housing and everything else. And what was a culture shock for me, Chris and Warren and uh, um, Jason was when on national TV there's 20 police officers tasering my son and then saying that you know he he's trying to get a gun from them but all the while he's really trying to tell them like I'm already on the ground why are you all on top of me like you can go to YouTube look up his name and you'll see the pictures it was very vivid and 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 I get a phone call and they tell me to go see it that was my reality that nothing had changed. Mm. Nothing had changed because where I was from, we were, before even Obama went into power, we were under the impression that, you know, we, we gave sovereign and respect to our ancestors that fought to fight for us. And now we're going to set the example to keep it going, going forward. But to come to America and see that even though there is so much more Black people in America than even in my country, um, and the fact that they they still have to fight for the right to be able to have housing in certain neighborhoods and the right to be able to have a decent bank account. Like you know, they're told from the get go how their finances should be processed. You know, um, seniors. Recently, I was talking to some seniors, and it was like, you know, if we got more than our disability, $2 more than our disability amount, they could lose their disability. Well, wait a minute now. If if the economy doesn't stop at that level, why do they have to stop at that level? But it's not the same for Black seniors as it is for white seniors. It's not the same for uh, Black neighborhoods as it is for white neighborhoods. A Black person trying to get a buy a new house has a lesser chance of getting a loan than a white person. And when I realized that, I was like, wow, like, I, 
like you just said, Chris, I was like, okay, so this is this has not changed. The reality of it all is that it's it's still the same, and and it's a struggle. It's a struggle that needs to be not only addressed, like y'all said, but also um, addressed with truth and facts, like really addressed. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, like. Um, we were bringing up Martin Luther King. When we say Martin Luther King, we think about the I Have a Dream speech. We think about him saying the words, I, I'm, I want little black boys and little black girls with little white boys and little white girls walking hand in hand and the fight for integration. What we don't talk about, we don't have the conversation when Martin Luther King came back and said, I'm afraid that we've integrated into a burning building. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the things like the civil rights movement, when we talk about um, different components of how even Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement fell so short to what it was intended to do. When we talk about integration, integration for a perspective, it's hard to have the conversation. Am I promoting that, you know, I don't want to see black and white people together? Absolutely not. But if we want to be honest about this conversation, integration was one of the most damaging things for the black community. This is why. You took blacks and put them in a place to be another consumer. Now, when you integrated the schools, you did not integrate the principals. You did not integrate the educators. When you integrated us for customers as a business, you didn't say we are going to allow Black-owned businesses. So I just did a a little example uh, video the other day. Anybody that's familiar with the game of Monopoly, and I'll take just you three as an example. Let's say we're starting a game of Monopoly. Now, Jason, you are the last person in this game. Now, the three of us have been playing, and all of the property has already been bought. All of the property has hotels on it. Mm -hmm. Jason, would you want to enter that game? No, sir. Is there any opportunity for you to win that game? Even if we gave you all the money in the bank, is there any opportunity for you to win that game when 100% of the property on the board is already owned? No, not at all. So why do we continue to push these narratives of equal starts? And it's not there. Equal opportunity. We say these things. That doesn't happen without ownership. So when you have a monopoly on the ownership, when you take things like sports, a lot of people don't even realize, let's go back to a historical standpoint, a lot of people don't even know where integration, the idea of integration started. When even from a standpoint of integration, it wasn't because we wanted to see some equality. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because we wanted to see, you know, black boys and black girls and white boys and white girls walking together. It happened because you see things very similar to what happened with uh, Jackie Robinson. If you ever seen the movie with Jackie Robinson, The owner came to him and said, I'm not a good man. I'm just ahead of the curve. I understand what's coming. So when you start talking about integration, it wasn't because they wanted equality. It's because Ivory League colleges were coming down to Florida and playing high schoolers and getting blown off the field by 70 points. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you couldn't have a black athlete on your team. The fear of black ownership 
in things like Black Wall Street and Rosewood. You know, when you say things like, oh, well, the black on black crime and things of that nature, you totally dismiss what happened when fresh out of slavery in Tulsa, Oklahoma and other areas around the country, fresh out of slavery, people were able to come and develop an economical power to the point where they were labeling it Wall Street. And it was torn down overnight and bombed. And not only was it bombed, they they called it a riot instead of a massacre. So they wouldn't have to have hold certain insurance responsibility because you didn't have riot insurance. So you had businesses that lost everything. And even though they had insurance, you didn't have to pay it out because you're not covered under the riot. So when you have these particular elements of true history, it's extremely important for us to have the conversation of, okay, are we willing to revisit history? When we talk about Martin Luther King, are we willing to input, hey, he was afraid um, to talk about these particular things. And he didn't just die because he wanted to integrate. He died because he was going to Congress with the Poor People's Campaign that was going to demand millions, if not billions of dollars to be put back into the black community. And he had a coalition to be able to do that. Most people don't know that. And when I don't know that, I can just continue to kumbaya. Oh, Martin Luther King is the standard of racial unity. No, he was causing all types of rifts. And he came to understand, like, even though my intention was for us to at one point be unified, that doesn't happen without giving black people an actual economical base for them to not constantly be stuck in a place of poverty. So we want to talk about crime. Crime has always been dependent on the level of resources because you can't take the black on black crime narrative and move that to an affluent community in Atlanta. You got total ownership. Where's the black on black crime there? Well, guess what? I'm not worried about taking your 70 inch TV when I'm going home to my 75 inch. It's as simple as that. So we're going to have a real conversation about how we're going to heal and move forward. It is absolutely imperative that we address the misinformation that we've done, the false narratives that have been put in place. And we're going to have to be willing to have some real gut punch moments of, ooh, I just might be in the lineage of a slave owner. I just might be in a position where this business was literally robbed from this creator of black families so if you're going to have a conversation about how we're moving forward we're going to have to start back even i have a play that i did and it's called i see the fruit but what's the root you can't go to the tree and try to correct the root by affecting the branch you are going to have to go to the root and that is an uncomfortable process uh, but it's absolutely necessary if we want to be effective. Yeah, and I think I do think we we are seeing more openness from from kind of uh, white white people from from many of us to hear the stories um, and and perspective of of black voices and to be intentional about seeking those out. I uh, I think that's happening um, and. And and I, I think you're right. I think being willing to to learn about the history um, is is important. And you know, you're talking as about as long as it doesn't stop there. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. That, that, that can be a starting That's a point. Start. That can be a starting yes. point. Great point. Right. And and that um, you know, Austin Austin Channing Brown talks about in her book, "I'm Still Here," 
um, she talks about some hearing conversations of her parents and other black adults um, about the ways that that segregation hurt them as as a family as as a black community um, and how like you were saying took away black educators and and all these things that happened in segregation again that, that weren't really just things that I uh, had thought about or processed much, um, you know, and, and, and I think opening ourselves up to that is, is important. So Chris, as, as, um, a church that is in, um, we have a couple of complexes that is predominantly black and it's not that, um, the church is not diverse. It's not that the church is not open, but what would you suggest that some of the things that we could do to, um, invite or um, employ um, them to come to our church. Not be, Like I said, it's not that the church is not open. I think that the stigma has been put on the church before the church was divine. And so it's the location and the building, not necessarily the people. Do you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, it all comes down to relationship. If you are going to talk about something um, sensitive, uncomfortable, uh, something that you've been silenced about a thousand times over. Um, one of the most uncomfortable components is silence. Mm -hmm. So I, I give an example uh, of me working with some of the at-risk kids at um, at a elementary or a middle school here in Abilene. So I was working as a instructional aide, and they brought me the kids that got in trouble. So I'm in my office, I'm trying to do some emails. And one of the, <laughs> I'm just thinking about him. I love that kid. But he comes in my office and uh, the assistant principal is like, here. <laughs> like, you know, I'm frustrated, I'm angry. And me and him had had that conversation of responding uh, for punitive measures out of anger. It's not just the kid that needs to calm down, it's the person in authority that needs to calm down. So this was his like, okay, here. Take this, and so he, he brought he brought him in, and the kid is irate, and he's telling me like, "Oh man, what? I don't care what you gonna suspend me." I'm at my turn. Now, what? What you gonna send me to ISS? I ain't going to ISS. No. So we sitting, and he's he's hyping himself up, but he's starting to lose that Momentum. energy. Right. <laughs> they losing their momentum. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he gave his last little thrust and he's sitting there at, at the thing and he's getting ready to leave. I said, my only request to you is please don't leave the room because once you leave the room, you outside my jurisdiction. Uh, it's nothing I can do. Now I'm in my office. This is a safe place. And so he comes back, he sits down and then he snaps one more time and says, Man, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? I said, I'm so glad you asked. I said, I want you to feel absolutely respected and heard by me. Mm. And he starts crying. And he's telling me some of the things he got going on. He's dealing with domestic violence at the house. Uh, they're dealing with all these different CPS potential cases and things that are going on. But it was that opportunity to speak exactly how he felt without somebody trying to silence him without somebody trying to direct his narrative, without somebody coming in and telling him, oh, you need to, I know you're cut, but you need to bleed like this. You need to be in pain like this. And I feel that becomes one of the most damaging components because if I am bold enough 
if I'm desperate enough to come out and tell you, number one, that I'm bleeding in the first place, that I'm vulnerable and that I'm hurting. And the only response that I get back to that was you blaming me for getting cut in the first place, whether it be intentional or unintentional. Right. That is one of the most damaging things you can do. So if we want to create an environment, we really have the best opportunity if we listen. So when I do my training and consulting with teachers, I give them a tool and I tell them, you cannot always make a situation better, but you can always make it worse. But sometimes not making it worse is exactly what's needed for it to get better. Giving people that are in pain the opportunity to speak their truth and for it to be heard, not antagonized, not made fun of, but to really be heard. And the only thing that comes out your mouth is another effort to deeper understand where they're coming from or being willing to sit back in that place of silence to let them know, hey, you so valuable to me that you, if we have an hour to talk, you can spend 55 of that minutes being totally silent because this is your time. And I don't see that happening in a lot of spaces because there is, when something is said that's uncomfortable, even if it's something that we don't agree with, our knee-jerk reaction is to respond. Our knee-jerk reaction is like, whoa, 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 you can't say, no. So you allow people to come speak their truth and listen. And if you can create that environment, the possibilities are endless. But that is also, that takes all of your cover away. That takes all of your ability to direct the conversation away. So you are coming in with a level of vulnerability where you might hear something. I've literally been in situations where, you know, you're asking about a kid and the person that actually abused him is in the room. So if I'm telling you that I want you to be truthful, if I'm telling you I want to know why are you uncomfortable coming to the church, and then they come and say, hey, your pastor molested me, your minister molested me, Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm on the hook now. I am 100% on the hook because I have to act to what you're saying. I have one or two choices. I can try to diminish what you're saying because that's too much of an accountability for me, or I can say, hey, well, if this is what's going on, it absolutely needs to be addressed. And we're going to do the investigation. And when it, if it does come down to it, we can't be at a place where we're trying to protect people's legacies with blood money of these people's sanity. And I think it's extremely important for us to understand, like, you know, I, there's a lot of white people that I've spoken to. They was like, man, Chris, I don't want to pay for slave owners. I don't want to be on the hook for, I didn't create this. I don't even believe in that stuff. You're absolutely correct, but it's going to take, if you, if you really pay attention to it, and we've had this conversation, I, I, I know I'm getting long-winded. I, I, sh- I shut it down a little bit, but if you have a conversation about what effective movement since slavery, a lot of people will say civil rights movement. They'll say the Emancipation Proclamation. I say the most effective movement was the Underground Railroad. And the reason why I said it is because they understood each component. So you may have had a white person that was hiding a basement full of black people to go to the next place and they understood that they had to go up and they had to play the bigot card. They had to sound racist. They had to say things to people that may have been looking for these people and they had to keep on the cloak 
of I'm as racist as they come and I hate these black people and I hope you catch them and you gut them and you hang them in the center town and they had to close that door and go downstairs and cry to those people and apologize for what they had to say because that was the action necessary for them to be able to make it to freedom. And that is one of the most difficult conversations for us to have. When you come out in a place of authority, it's not just what you physically do in the public. It's not just about what you verbally say. When you sit in a place where you find somebody that you are going to fund and develop, like I can come out and say all the racist stuff that I want and, and do these different things. If I don't put some action behind it, that's, that's all it's left with. I think our emotional component of just looking for that surface feel good. I, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with being able to disdain from the title of racism. I'm totally okay with just making sure that, it, you know, if I'm a white man, if you know that I'm not racist and you know that I don't have a problem with you dating my daughter and you feel comfortable at my home, then I'm all the way good. I'm not interested in the fact that there is systematics in place to make sure that even though they may be safe in my home, the fact that I'm not ready to deal with, you can't walk on my block without being harassed with the police because that means I got to deal with my other constituents. That's I know some of these other people that absolutely impact my way of life. So it's not something as simple as coming out and just putting things in position to just quote unquote, not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. You have to be willing to come in and say, no, I won't stand for this. I will boycott. I will take my resources and not be available for this. I will front you out. I will make this completely uncomfortable and that is one of the most difficult conversations to have. Because if we told the truth, when you make that decision, you don't know how many people are going to follow you. You don't know how replaceable you are. So if I, if, if I am in a position where I can come out and say something to talk and discuss for marginalized people, and that's going to take my pension, that's going to take my house away, that's going to take away a lot of the things that I legitimately work for because I know other people are going to snap when they hear this, and then the add on top of that, they're going to replace me tomorrow as if I didn't even exist, it almost feels like it's worthless. It's no point. But I feel, I feel like at this particular time, we have enough people that will unilaterally come in and say, enough is enough. Let's have this conversation. Let's put some action behind it. And understand the conversation is just the start. And we are nowhere near close to being done with it. So when you when you find people that are willing to take that attitude, it makes it possible. And I feel like churches that are willing to come with that perspective um, and really listen. And this is a perfect example, just for you sharing your platform. For me, you don't have to give me this. It may not be financially beneficial if you have some people in your church that don't share your ideology on what we're talking about. And that, that's a reality. But if you're willing to say, I'm willing to impact my financial stability because this is my integrity and this is what I believe, that's where absolute change can actually yeah, and I, I Hopefully that answers Yeah, I think, and I, I think that's probably a good place for us to, uh, to kind of press pause on our conversation for today. Because like you said, co conversation isn't enough. And, and this, and, and you know, it's certainly even even within conversation though one that needs to keep going 
But I think we'll, for, for our purposes today, we'll kind of stop there with that. I like that thought that you kind of, um, that you were giving there at the end, that, that we need to be listening. We need to be willing to, um, uh, to sit in silence and, and to hear the stories of others, to hear this perspective of others, uh, to be willing to be made a little uncomfortable, or maybe a lot uncomfortable in some cases. Um, we need to be willing to do that. Uh, in fact, that's something we pray in our church every Sunday. Uh, we, we have this prayer of confession that we pray every Sunday. And part of it is, part of the prayer is um, that we would not, I can't, I'm blanking on the exact wording now. I pray it almost every day. Um, uh, that we would be willing to, to go down, uh, that we would not avoid paths um, of least involvement uh, or paths of self-centeredness uh, or paths where we're uncomfortable. Um, and, and so that's important. Um, and, and we want to be a church that does that, that's willing to go down paths that, that lead us to some uncomfortable places. Um, and, but I, I especially liked what you said that there's some, there's some cost counting that probably needs to go into that on the front end, that, that if I'm going to be willing to listen and I'm going to hear the stories and perspectives of others. And then not be willing to act on that, not be willing to implement that, not be willing to say, okay, here are some changes then that need to be made. That, that can be very harmful um, and, and can have the opposite effect of, of what we're hoping it will have. And so that, that needs to be something that we're intentional about. And, and so we'll, we'll kind of close out there for today, but I did want to, one, one, there's several things that I've thought of as, as we've gone through this. One that I just want to mention briefly at the end, because you were talking about that picture of white Jesus, you know, and how prevalent that is. And we actually had a situation this past week. I put together a children's video for our kids every Sunday, or now every other Sunday. And I use these, some, some videos that I usually find on YouTube, right? And so there's this one, there's this famous one, or there's these well-done videos done by, uh, I think it's by Saddleback Church and not to call them out or anything. But I noticed in this video that, because it, it was a video about Jesus telling this parable, right? So it has Jesus and his disciples, and then it like shifts to this scene where he's telling the parable. And so in this video, Jesus is white. Then he shifts to, the, he's telling this parable about a farmer, right? And the farmer is black. And so like G, Jesus is like, so I thought they made an intentional effort with this, that Jesus is white. And he's telling this story about this agricultural, you know, kind of, you know, position and the farmer is black. And I thought, ah, like they told this story well, but the image associated with it. And so I didn't use it because I was like, at some point, we've, we've got to start making choices about the, the imagery and the, the visuals that we present to our kids, to our churches and and um, and so I ended up not using it because I was just like that. Just that's rough. <laughs> um, and and so I think it it's going to cause those moments for us when we think, okay, I'm I'm listening. I want to I want to be an ally. I want to be I want to to recognize some of my blind spots and misconceptions and some of the lies that that we've told ourselves. Kind of going to a question that you posed in in the conversation with Kyle, Chris, and. And want to be aware of those things and then we want to think about okay so what does that look like for us then if after after we've done the listening and so i think i think with our church we're kind of we're kind of somewhere in that listening stage i, I hope and and we're, we're we're inviting the the perspective uh or or we're, we're wanting to be people who listen i think you know 
we're, we're at kind of different stages of that probably in, in our individual lives of where we're at in, in terms of willingness to listen, listening, or, or implementing some of those things within our own lives. But, but thank you all, uh, Tamisha and Chris, for joining us and, and kind of being a part of that process for us uh, and for lending your voices and experiences to different platforms. And uh, I know that I'm, I'm kind of torn on this because I, I also, I know it's a burden for, for y'all that, that isn't necessarily fair to y'all to kind of educate and, and bring, bring others along. Um, and so I appreciate your, your willingness to, to be part of these conversations. And so thank you for joining us today and, and for your thoughts, for your perspective and, um, and your willingness to, to engage this with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, Jason, that was a lot of information. I think a lot of good perspective. And so uh, this is Warren. I'm joined again now by, by Jason. We're going to kind of do a little bit of a wrap-up debrief closing to, to this two-week conversation. Now, we're having this conversation right on the heels, heels of, of the conversation we had with, with Chris and Jude and Tamisha. And so, Jason, do you have any just kind of immediate reflections or thoughts that you're kind of processing after, after kind of being a part of this conversation today? Yeah, I think it's important to note that um, my experience as a white man, a white 43-year-old man um, is, I mean, maybe this goes without saying, but I, I need to say it anyway, is very different from Chris or Jude or Tamisha's experience. Um, and it could be argued that um, that that could be said of anybody, regardless of color or gender or nationality or anything like that, that everybody's experience is different. And that's true. That, that is definitely true. Um, but a lot of, there are a lot of similarities that do ultimately go back to race that, I, that they share that I don't. And I have to reckon with that, you know? Um, I have to reckon with the fact that um, that the experience of being a a black individual in the United States and the experience of being a black man in the United States, the experience of being a black Christian in the United States is extremely different from my experience because of our different racial backgrounds. And a lot of it is cultural. Um, cultural differences that, that in many ways emerged because of the racial divides uh, that, that have existed in our country for so long. Um, but a lot of it also is born out of ignorance. Um, it's born out of kind of just a, a discomfort with people who are different. And I think for an example of that, look at, if, look at the different ways in which uh, some black people worship and how it it may be more vocal and it may be more active and participatory that makes a lot of white christians uncomfortable and i've even heard some say that well it's disrespectful or it's um that's not the way that that we should be in church or it's it's a attention seeking or something like that and i would challenge that by saying it's it's not any of those things. It's just different. It's different than what you're used to. Um, and I think that, you know, as, as we mentioned, 
we're used to thinking that the white way of doing church is the best way or is the quote-unquote right way. And I think one of the challenges that we have in front of us is to, is to look at what do we need, how do we need to change our thinking? And I think one way in which we need to change our thinking is by um, looking at what we're comfortable with and asking, am I comfortable with it because it's kind of keeping the status quo or am I comfortable with it um, because I just don't know any better or it's just what I'm quote unquote used to? And how might that be an indicator of my own complacency? How might that be an indicator of how I might be inadvertently supporting or, or passively supporting um, a, a discriminatory or segre- a, a discriminatory culture or a culture of segregation or separation? I think that's something that we have to reckon with, that we have to um, repent from. And I hope that this conversation was an initial kind of first step towards doing that. I think we have a lot of work to do as a society. We have a lot of work to do as a church at the Vine. And I think we as individuals have a lot of work to do. So so that's kind of my, uh, my thoughts after the fact. Yeah, I could see a potential pushback to part of what you just said being that I, I think someone might could hear what you said and say, well, Jason, I don't, I don't think that the white white way is the right way. Like that's not part of part of my thinking. Um, but I think it's it gets back to what you said just about the the inadvertent ways that that we go about things and the ideas that we have. And I remember coming to a point in my faith where I kind of realized the kind of church structure that I had been that I had kind of absorbed um, growing up in church was that. Everything that we were doing was the scriptural right way to do it. And and that our church was structured the right way. And and so I left for college and, and I realized I had this idea that if anyone did th- things different from any way from how I had grown up doing them, then they were wrong. Because if we're doing things the right scriptural way, then anything that's different from that is wrong. Because that's how they did it in first century church, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, because that was that was my experience, yeah. and, and I just absorbed, and I've and I've shared this in, in other places. My parents never were really a part of this. It was it was it was really kind of the the kind of practices and teachings of a church that we did some youth stuff with. That that kind of just almost through like osmosis, I just felt like I kind of in in my kind of processing and afterwards, just kind of felt like this is this is being taught as. This is, this is the way you do things. And, and we have rightly divided the word. We have figured out the right way to do it. And, and so this is it. And so I think, I think that bleeds into this conversation that, that, that I absorbed that and I absorbed that culture, which was a very white culture and a very white worship style. And so a lot of factors come into that, but part of it is that, that I end up absorbing this idea that, that yeah, if I see this this other culture of worship this culture of worship that Chris and Jude both spoke to that you know you're worshiping from 9 to 4 and it's very it's loud and it's um it's there's an impromptu nature to it and you you, you kind of heard an offhanded comment from Jude about that like what do you mean logistics like you know if you've got something to say or seeing you just kind of stand up and do it 
and and that would seem to us to be to us quote unquote in in our you know history and background to be disorder and worship is supposed to be orderly and and you know all of those things that that many of us grew up kind of hearing and i think you know one of the kind of reflections and and thoughts that i had and and one of the things that i think it's it's calling me to this conversation and and many others around it that we've been having um it's connected to some other faith stories and kind of revelations that I've had in my in my life kind of again coming out of that mindset that just because something is different means it's wrong and and so again I've I've shared in in, in various settings here about how I kind of arrived at, at this idea you know I, I started from the standpoint that women speaking in, in church is is wrong is sinful uh, and kind of grew to to thinking actually you know no that doesn't seem to be the case and 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 kind of grew to a standpoint of thinking it, it was okay for it to happen I was I was not I didn't have a theological issue with it but it wasn't something that I was really proactively pushing for um, and and I realized a big reason for that was that it wasn't my voice that was being suppressed um, and, and it wasn't until Isley, as a four-year-old in worship service, asked me, you know, Dad, why do only boys get up on stage, that I realized, wait a minute, I want to pursue something different for my daughter, and I want to be at a place where I can, where she can, can see other women, other, other girls have a voice, where she herself can feel like she has a voice, and where that is invited and, and appreciated. And so that's part of what led us um, to the vine. And I, I, think it's, I think there's a similar kind of journey that we need to come to in terms of, of racial conversations. Um, and I think even like, you know, there was a conversation we kind of got into a couple of times there about how even in, in American church, we have this image of, of this white Jesus. And, and what would it look like for us to, to do something as, as really seemingly simple as just saying, we want to be intentional about not propagating that image of Jesus in our imagery, in our visuals, in, in the things that we do. And I think that's a step that, that some would see as not really having that much of an impact, or it would be something that some would say, well, yeah, I get what you're saying, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of okay with where things are in that. But realizing the impact that it can have on others, um, and not only on, on those who would be of a different skin color, but the impact that it can have on, on us and on our kids and, and the ways that they visualize and interpret um, Jesus, I do think is important. And, you know, I heard a quote from someone the other day. It may have even been in, in the other podcast that, that, that Chris was a part of with your brother, that someone say, children are good observers, but poor interpreters. Um, and I love that quote because... Um, it it encourages me to to be even more intentional about what my kids are seeing because um, I may have a certain intention or whatever behind it, but but they're going to see that and make their own interpretations, which may not be the interpretations I want them to take. Right. Them. Yeah, and that's and that's part of the challenge of um, any time that you're being self-reflective to think about. Not just what is my intention. Intention is, is great, and I don't mean to say that intention doesn't matter. It most definitely does. But it's not the only thing that matters. And in some cases, it's not even the biggest thing that matters. What is the actual effect of what we say and what we do? If I don't intend any harm, but I still cause harm, I have to take responsibility for that. 
if I don't intend to exclude someone, but that turns out to be the effect that I have excluded someone, that I have um, unintentionally caused someone to feel unwelcomed in my church, I have to repent for that. I have to atone for that. Um, and I have to take responsibility to, um, to attend to changes that will reduce that from happening or eliminate that from happening again. Um, and so I think that that goes along with what you're saying, that um, just because I believe myself to be welcoming, just because the Vine Church believes itself to be welcoming, and, and in every word and deed... Uh, tries to be a welcoming and, and encouraging and, uh, uh, and church that will, that will not discriminate. If we're inadvertently doing things that may send a different message unintentionally, we have to, attu- uh, you know, we have to attend to that. We have to take responsibility for that. And that's, I think, the, the thing that I keep going back to in you know, my own journey through this is not so much, well, am I racist or am I not? And, it, and it's not so much a question of, okay, well, I don't say certain, I don't use certain words and I don't, you know, tell people you can't do this or you can't do that because of the color of your skin. I don't do those things. And if that were enough, I could look at myself and say, yeah, I'm not racist. I'm, I'm doing great as far as that goes. But that's not enough. We also have to look at how am I inadvertently creating a barrier that I may not even see, that I may not even recognize I'm creating? How am I invalidating or silencing the voices of people who may not be like me, who may have very different experiences from me, simply because I'm just not engaging with those voices? Yeah. yeah. You know? And that's, I think that's the challenge. Yeah, and I think all of that is... Are, those are some of the reasons I've, I've been very excited about um, the addition to our staff and church family of, of Rachel and, and Hezekiah Yator um, and, and the perspective that I think that they will bring to, to our church family. And, and, and I'm, I'm excited to, to hear from them and, and to hear, I just, I think we're going to have an, an unbelievable opportunity in front of us. It, lo- it looks like they are their their travel got pushed back uh, a couple of times from leaving um, leaving Kenya to, to head to Texas, and looks like that is now on track at least for about a week from now. But but you know we're gonna have this this incredible opportunity to sort of experience someone's to experience the the first. Uh, the first time for a a black man from Kenya to live full time in America, and what a time for him to be doing so! Yeah. And we're going to get to experience that alongside with him, and I'm sort of excited about that and, and looking forward to it, and 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 excited about what they're going to bring to our church family. And and even though you know Rachel her, herself is white, uh, she has had quite a bit of experience in a very different culture um, where there are very different norms and perspectives and, and ways of doing church and, and all of those things that come from just a different environment. And I think that's going to be a cool aspect of, of our church that they're going to provide once, once they arrive, hopefully at some point mm, in July. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that as well. 
Um, I just want to say that um, we don't consider this to be the end of, of this conversation, even though we've recorded, um, you know, two two episodes. There, there's a lot more work to be done, a lot more conversation to be had. Um, I, I told Chris that I hope to have him back on the podcast at some point to talk about his book, From Boys to Gentlemen. Um, I think his, I've, I've started reading it, and uh, it's really... It's really profound, the uh, messages and the stories that he tells in there and how I I think typical that a lot of those stories are for people of color and how atypical those stories are for for white people. Um, And I think that that it's something that um, I've been really enlightened by and I, I hope at some point that we can have him back on to to talk a little bit more detail about that. And, and also, I think that we'll need to have some conversations at some point around, you know, what specifically does the Divine Church need to do around this topic? What are some of the action items that we can implement to, um, you know, at the very least, uh, be more welcoming in, not just in, in word, but in deed for people of color and people who may not look like, you know, the, the average uh, attendee at our church. I always find I, I always brag about how our church has such a, a wonderful diversity of beliefs, wonderful diversity of ages. Um, the places where we are not as diverse is in our racial makeup, and I, I would love to figure out if we can identify ways to to maybe change that. And maybe those are conversations we can have right. as well. Right. Yeah, and you know that was even. Toward the end of last year, we, we we did some, we had some conversations and thoughts about just our uh, twenty twenty vision, and we rolled some of that out at the beginning of the year, and and um, inviting you, Jason, on as as an elder was was part of that conversation, and other aspects uh, of the rollout of that vision were kind of interrupted by by COVID, kind of dominating uh, two thousand twenty. Yeah, uh, some of them have have kind of been rolled out, and some of them kind of got got put on the back burner for a while, but just part of those conversations as is at that point, the, the three elders and, and me and Katie Ann at that point, as we were talking about things that we appreciated and, and enjoyed about the vine and, and things that we wanted to kind of see, see different going forward. Uh, I think, you know, there was overwhelming positivity about who we are as a church and the direction that we're headed amongst the five of us. Um, but that was probably the, the piece that there was agreement on as far as what we hoped would look different, you know, if we were just to take a, our ideal snapshot of the vine five years from now, if we were to describe that, what would look different? And I think the consensus among the five of us was, was that, yeah, more, we, we, we hope that we would look more racially diverse mm-hmm. and that, that our congregation would, would more accurately reflect uh, the makeup of our community and, and that we would be, be more reflective of, of, of kind of the population around us. And, and yeah, recognizing that that may, that may require some inward, inward looking, um, reflection and thought. And, and I think these conversations that, that we're having now can be a part of that. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully lead to some, some tangible things, some action items that we can, can take to, to, to help that happen. Um, 
because we do want to be this this diverse picture of of God's family yeah. and uh and and reflect the the inclusivity of um the unity of the spirit that we find in in scripture. All right, well I think that's that's probably good for today. We'll we'll close out there for for this conversation. Uh once again, if if you've made it this far in the two conversations, thanks for for doing this. And I know that these are weighty conversations and, and heavy conversations, especially for some. And there may even be a thought of, of uh, you know, man, these are, these are such difficult times anyways. You know, I just want something kind of lighter or, or fluffier. <laughs> so, so thanks for hanging with these because we do think that they are important conversations, things that we need to be pursuing um, as, as Christ followers and those those seeking righteousness and, and justice um, in in this world and and wanting to be intentional about how we how we play a role in that and and how we move forward in those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Jason, do you want to close us out in in prayer, and we'll we'll do close that way for today. Yes, our heavenly Father, we thank you for the diversity of people that you have created. We thank you for the different lives and experiences and knowledge and gifts that people bring to, uh, to our lives. God, I ask that, that you search our hearts, that you give us the strength and the courage to uh, question our complacency. I ask that you help our fear and our trepidation in engaging with things and with ideas and with people that we may not understand. And Lord, I ask that we um, can be your light and a light that shines on, on all people, that welcomes all people, that loves all people, not just based on what we're comfortable with or what we think we know, but, but also based on, uh, on the fact that you, your breath breathes through each and every human being. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Uh, thank you for, for making us whole. And I pray that each and every person that calls upon you as Savior um, will have the courage to, to, to search out their heart and to live the kind of life with your creation that you've called us to live. Be with us this week and always. And in your son's name we pray, amen.